Good morning. Pray with me as we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would align our hearts and our practice to match up with your character and your ways. We ask that you would advance Christ's kingdom through our witness and our behavior as your people and your ambassadors on earth. We ask that you would knit us together in unassailable unity for the sake and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The elders determined uh, Monday night to once again delay wrapping up our study of the book of Jeremiah for a couple of weeks. We still have a few messages to do in that book. We did so because we believe that the present conflict in our culture demands that we examine what God has to say about it. So we'll have special messages this morning and again next Sunday uh, if our plan unfolds as we have it now. Uh, for next Sunday, we intend that, that Bob Deffenbaugh and Robert Warner will each bring part of the message. This message is going to be a little bit longer than usual, not, not a whole lot, but you can consider yourselves fortunate because even if you stay tuned all the way to the end, you won't hear my 21 pages of outtakes. This has been a, a very difficult uh, effort on, on my part. And I have, uh, I have prayed and prayed that God will, would grant me wisdom and would make this useful to him. The recent horrifying death of George Floyd under the knee of a white police officer, so soon after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, have pushed this nation to a tipping point unlike any that I have seen since the civil rights movement and anti-war protests when I was a very young man. At the heart of all of the present unrest is a cry for justice. But what is justice? The popular modern definitions are hopelessly circular. Let me read you just a few definitions from Merriam-Webster's current online English dictionary. Justice is the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. Okay, so to know what justice is, we have to know what it means to be just. Here's the definition of just. Acting or being in conformity with what is morally right or good. Okay, so to, to know what is just, we have to know what's right and good. The defini definition of moral is conforming to a standard of right behavior. And the definition of right is being in accordance with what is just, good, and proper. <laughs> okay, so you know you're practicing justice when you're doing things that are just. And you know you're doing things that are just when you're doing things that are right. And you know that you are being right when the things you're doing are just. You see the problem? The problem with those modern definitions of what should be profoundly powerful words is that they have no reference point. They're like a plane that can't finish its task 
flying in circles and getting lower and lower on fuel because it can't find any place to land. And that's because they're attempting to define virtues that exist in God's creation only because they exist in the Creator. And they're trying to do so without reference to the Creator. They have pushed Him aside. They have no ground to land on. Now, here's one of those same definitions from a much earlier English dictionary. Noah Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language. The definition I'm about to read to you is the first definition presented for the word right. Right is conformity to the will of God or to his law, the perfect standard of truth and justice. In the literal sense, right is a straight line of conduct and not a crooked one. Right, therefore, is rectitude or straightness. And perfect straightness, perfect rectitude is found only in an infinite being and in his will. Now that's a definition with a reference point. The right reference point. It's the same reference point that we find in numerous passages like Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. How is the Christian's definition of justice different than the world's definition? Simple. The Christian's definition points unwaveringly to God alone, to find both the source and the meaning of justice. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, very well-known verse. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice and to love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Justice is inextricably tied to loving kindness, and that word in the Old Testament means covenant-keeping love. Both justice and covenant-keeping love find their source only in God himself. The only reason we know what those words mean is because God has made himself known. In order for the attributes of the Creator to invade and control the lives of, of his creatures, the creatures have to go to the source in humble, dependent faith. We have to walk humbly with our God. We have to say to God, Lord, the only justice, the only covenant-keeping love that we will ever know or do must proceed from you. Here's a great definition of social justice that matches up with that biblical declaration. It's from an article by the Christian Relief Organization, World Vision. The article is titled, What Does Social Justice Really Mean? 
It says, from a scriptural point of view, justice means loving our neighbor as we love ourselves and is rooted in the character and nature of God. As God is just and loving, so we are called to do justice and to live in love. And we'll talk more about how people actually come to do that a little later, but for the moment, let's acknowledge that that is what God requires of us. As God is just and loving, so we are called to do justice and to live in love. God requires us to practice justice. Micah 6, 8 again, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love covenant-keeping love and to walk humbly with your God. It's pretty straightforward. The first two of those requirements have God as their only source, and therefore they will not happen without the third one. Walk humbly with your God. God demands that we be like him and do as he does, and that means that we have to know him. We have to be intimately, personally connected to him. We'll talk about how that happens a little later as well. But God requires more of human beings than, that, than merely personal justice. His requirement isn't only about you and me doing just things toward other people. In the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, after indicting his own covenant people Israel for their injustice toward the oppressed and downtrodden, here's what God said to them. This is Isaiah 1, starting in verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Listen to that again. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So keeping God's assignment to do justice isn't merely a matter of how I behave as an individual. It's also a personal obligation before God to reprove or rebuke those who violate his just and loving character in their treatment of others and to intervene to defend and plead on behalf of those who suffer such violations. So we are to treat other people justly and we are to rebuke those who don't. And we are to plead the cause of those who suffer at the hands of people who don't treat them justly. How did Israel do with that sacred assignment? Well, here's what God said to Israel just a few verses later in the same chapter. Verse 22, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, and that's because of the presence of God in her midst, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. In short, everything that God said he required of them, they did not do. 
And if you work your way through the Old Testament, you'll have a really hard time counting up all of the indictments against Israel and Judah that sound exactly like that one. The, their failure to practice the justness and loving kindness of God was constant. But they got better, right? No. Jesus was still indicting the religious leaders among the Jews for the same injustices 700 years later. Matthew 23, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The scribes and Pharisees who were the religious leaders in Israel in Jesus' day considered themselves exempt from any accusation of injustice. They viewed their own behavior as the standard that God had set before his people. After all, God had anointed them to be priests, the mediators of the knowledge of God to his community. They were the ones that all Israel was supposed to imitate. So how could Jesus accuse them of injustice? But he did over and over. You think that might be relevant to us whom God has put in positions of leadership in his covenant community today, his redeemed community, the church? Is it possible that we've convinced ourselves that our knowledge of God's word and of God's ways somehow ensures that we are not missing God's mark when it comes to living justly? All right, so... At least until Jesus' day, God's covenant people Israel didn't do so well with his assignment to them to do justice. But how has the church done with our God-given assignment to seek justice, to reprove the ruthless, to defend and plead for the downtrodden? I'm afraid the answer is a painfully mixed bag. I'm going to focus for a bit on just one manifestation of injustice, and that's the one that is presently in sharp focus in our country. That, of course, is injustice and oppression toward black people by white people. And I'm using the term black rather than African-American for part of this discussion because I'm looking beyond the church in America. How has the church done when it comes to doing justice toward black people? Well, Christians like William Wilberforce and John Newton were the driving force in the movement to abolish the grievous injustice of slavery in England in the early 1800s. And the basis of their appeal to their culture was exactly that slavery was a violation of the justness of God. But decades 
after the abolition of slavery in England, many Christians in America were still either silent on the issue or, unfortunately, were vigorously attempting to justify slavery on biblical grounds, which made for the same kind of horribly corrupted approach to the Bible in the mainstream church that has been practiced for decades by the Ku Klux Klan in America. For centuries in this country, both before and after we became an independent nation, many prominent evangelical Christian preachers owned slaves. Those preachers included Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and many, many others. A groundswell of Christian zeal for the abolition of slavery did gain steam in the United States over time, especially in the North, where it was seen as less a threat to the economic viability of the region than it was in the South. It's, it's very illuminating when you recognize how much the theology of Christian preaching on, on matters of justice in America has been about economics and pragmatism. By the time Abraham Lincoln delivered the Emancipation Proclamation on New Year's Day in 1863, most evangelical churches in the North were vigorously declaring the terrible injustice of slavery. But churches in the South were still largely ignoring or defending the practice. These aren't my opinions, guys. These are exceedingly well-documented historical facts. Three years after the Emancipation Proclamation and after 600,000 American lives had been lost, the Civil War ended, the Reconstruction began, and slaves in all of the then 36 states were officially free. And then things got better, right? <laughs> Christians throughout America finally fessed up to their long history of failure to apply the justness of God across racial boundaries, right? I think we all know the answer to that. A hundred years later, during the civil rights movement that pervaded the airwaves and conversation of America, during the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s, where was the church? Well, even if you set aside the lunatic fringe of so-called Christendom, like the Ku Klux Klan, the actual church of Jesus Christ in America, by and large, did a very poor job of representing Christ when it came to just and loving treatment of blacks in America. Countless Christians at all levels of leadership, even many who knew to the core of their being that such things were grievous in God's sight, treated the systematic demeaning and abuse of African Americans as if it was something that just had to be tolerated because it was so ingrained in the culture. Beloved, there can be no repentance. There can be no turning from sin to God if there is no confession, if there's no acknowledgement of the sin in the first place. We who are the spiritual household of God are commissioned by God to be the ones who proclaim what 
his character and his ways demand of all human beings, whether people listen or don't listen. If we continue making excuses for not doing so, we are simply disobeying God. We, the royal priesthood and holy nation of God, cannot be proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light if we're making no distinction between darkness and light in the first place. And to the extent that we have failed to do so and are failing to do so now, we have at least part of the answer as to why so many young Americans who grew up in the church have walked away from it. Young people can smell hypocrisy from a mile away. <laughs> but like one's own bad breath, they tend to have trouble recognizing the equally repugnant smell of their own hypocrisy. Over time, God will give them greater sensitivity to the hypocrisy and injustice in their own hearts if they are coming to his word and listening. And once they figure out that the habit of their own old sin nature is no more attractive than the habits of those whom they have judged so harshly, perhaps they'll come back to the bride of Christ and be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. But I pray with all my heart that their disdain for hypocrisy and injustice will never decrease. I pray that both old and young in the community of God's people will grow to hate everything that violates the character of our just and loving and merciful God because we love him. All right, I've talked about how the church in other places in the world and in our country has done with this sacred assignment, but how has the little flock of God at Community Bible Chapel done? Well, again, the answer is, I believe, mixed. But purely by the grace of God, I think we've done better than some of you might be aware. And that doesn't help the cause of moving forward if we're not aware and thankful to God for the things that have that he has brought us and caused us to do well. At the most obvious level, all you have to do is scan the room at one of our worship meetings to know that the membership of CVC includes people from many races and socioeconomic backgrounds. <laughs> and COVID-19 has unexpectedly uh, leveled the financial playing fields for some in our body. There is a whole lot of genuine, sacrificial love demonstrated day after day among the saints at CBC, love that simply does not care about racial or economic differences. Gordon Graham, Bob Deffenbaugh, and my father-in-law, Larry Obrey, spent two and a half decades on the board of Black Evangelistic Enterprises, which later became Urban Evangelical Mission. 
That ministry was co-founded by a godly and devout African-American man named Reuben Connor, who for a time in his younger days had very much been attracted to the Black Panthers movement as a way to pursue justice for Black Americans through violence, if necessary. But God saved Reuben Connor, and Reuben came to know the one whose own character actually tells us what justice is. And God saved Larry Obrey, whose words and behavior were once so wretched that he offended even his fellow sailors. <laughs> Larry came to know that same God whom Reuben had come to know, personally, intimately, transformingly, through simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ, and through daily listening to God and beholding him through his word. And then God took those two men whom he had redeemed and he brought them together as brothers for all eternity in the community of his people, and they are now they are now together in his glorious presence. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Reuben spent the rest of his life faithfully ministering to the less fortunate in our society, always pointing them to his Savior and Master Jesus. His life profoundly impacted many other lives. Tony Evans, the senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church, and Bill Thompson, the director of Union Gospel Mission in Dallas, were both deeply impacted by Reuben's heart and by Reuben's life, as were several men in this body. Larry was an attorney and for many years was the lead legal counsel for Black Evangelistic Enterprises. And because of his connection with Reuben, Larry took on numerous legal cases over many years to defend those who could not afford to pay the going rate for legal services. A number of men from our body have faithfully ministered at the Dallas County Jail over the span of, I think, about four decades. Not long before he went home to the Lord, Bob Quinn branched that ministry out to a jail north of Dallas and was devoted to that work until cancer made him unable to continue. And now he's with the Lord. Bill and Re Rebecca Miles, whom God, who, who last week announced that they considered CBC to be their home church, have had a very long-standing ministry to death row inmates in Texas. For many, many years, Al Angel raised funds each year through a, a marathon that he ran. And he gathered a team of believers who brought food to the dear people at the Fraser Court's housing projects. Many on those teams that went to the projects each year were from this church. Al is now on the board of Southern Bible Training Institute, which is devoted to providing outstanding Bible teaching to men and women in the predominantly African-American community of South Dallas. Many folks in this body have opened their homes, sometimes for years, to people in need, 
without regard to race or economic situation. And many people in this body have opened their wallets to pay rent and other expenses for others while they were unemployed or sidelined by illness without regard to race or anything else. So if someone tells you that the Church of Jesus Christ has no real-world commitment to do justice, to love covenant-keeping love, and to walk humbly with our God, you might consider inviting them to check out the community and ministries of CBC. But whatever we've gotten right, beloved, does not exempt us in any way from our accountability for our failures to rightly do justice on God's behalf. Many of us have approached the unjust treatment of African Americans with ignorance and silence. And I consider myself to be in that number. What must we do from here? I've realized over the last couple of weeks that for me personally, one of the most important parts to the answer to that question is simply to listen better. I have a really bad tendency to come up, uh, to come at every issue with my dog and pony show already all lined up. I talk before I listen. And that's an exceedingly bad way to get at the truth when there are strong differences of perspective involved, even among the people of God. God calls us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's in Ephesians 4. Turning blind eyes and deaf ears to an injustice that impacts our brothers and sisters and those whom they dearly love does not demonstrate diligence to preserve unity in love. Ron Manus sent out an article yesterday that, that pierced my heart on this very point. It was written by Bobby Jameson, an associate pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. After laying out part of the history of the problem, he came to a section of the article called Preserving Unity Amid Division. Here's what he said, and you can take the first part of, of this citation as, as if I were making the same request of you regarding what I've already said this morning. Brother Jameson writes, I am well aware that some readers will disagree with some of the premises in my analysis of racial injustice in our nation. If you do disagree with some of what I've said, I hope you'll permit me to offer one more challenge, which is this. Have you worked to understand and sympathize with the experiences of black church members and other black Americans? Have you labored to discern the differences between the world you live in and the world they live in? A little later, he says, there are two basic ways that we can try to preserve unity in the face of divisive issues. 
We can rule certain conversations off limits, or we can lower the stakes. By lower the stakes, I mean acting, speaking, and listening in such a way that it's clear to the person you're with that your love for them is strong enough to weather disagreement. How can you lower the stakes? As James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Whatever your experience of racial injustice has been, whatever your explanation of it, how can you work to lower the stakes in discussing it so that more and more of us can bear more and more of each other's burdens? Brothers and sisters, those are good words. Listening well is indispensable, but it doesn't fix anything. So what does? What must we as the redeemed of God actually do to bring the justness and loving kindness of our great God into the experience of both the perpetrators and the victims of injustice and hatred in our midst? Various approaches to dealing with injustice have been plastered across our TV and computer screens in living color over the last couple of weeks. Everything from peaceful protests like the one at Berkner Park in Richardson a few days ago in which some from our body participated, to peaceful protests co-opted by the violence of a few, to actions deliberately designed to fight violent injustice with violent injustice. We've seen violations of God's justice by police and by citizens. And we've seen acts of kindness and courage and mercy like a photo I saw of four black men escorting a police officer back to his group when a violent encounter had separated him from them and a video that somebody captured on their phone of a white policeman gently explaining to a little girl at a protest that he did not come there to kill her and her family. The question that you and I must let God answer, beloved, is what would God have his people do that will actually bless and not curse in this situation? and going forward from this situation. And what I believe we find indisputably presented from cover to cover in the Bible is that we must understand what God says our mission is not in order to embrace what God says our mission is. Now, some of you are going to be frustrated with what I propose as the biblical answers to both those questions, what our mission is and what our mission is not. And that's okay. All I'm asking is that you test my words with the words of God. I absolutely encourage you to discard whatever doesn't match. I'm going to read you an excerpt from what I consider to be one of the best books I've ever read outside the Bible about the actual mission of the church, particularly when it comes to social justice and injustice. It's from a book by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? 
and the subtitle is Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. De Young and Gilbert say, we will not be effective in our mission if everything is mission. Likewise, we will not deliver on our mission if we are not sure what it is. If our mission is discipleship, this will set us on a different trajectory than if our mission is to make earth more like heaven. So definitions matter because focus matters. And as Kostenberger says, the church ought to be focused in the understanding of its mission. Its activities should be constrained by what helps others come to believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. In the end, the Great Commission must be the mission of the church for two very basic reasons. There is something worse than death, and there is something better than human flourishing. End of quote. Beloved, the great blessedness, the greatest blessedness for the soul of man is not to live for a while in a just and righteous world. And that's a good thing because such a world will never exist until the King of Kings returns to gather together into one head the things in heaven and the things on earth. The greatest blessedness for the souls of human beings is not to live for a while in a just and righteous world. It is to live forever in the glorious company of our just and righteous God and of his people whom he has recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Last part is from Ephesians 4. And the greatest curse for the souls of human beings is not, it is not to live for a while in an unjust and unrighteous world. And that's a good thing because that's the world that we all live in until Jesus returns and makes all things new. The greatest curse for the souls of human beings is not to exist for a while in an unjust and unrighteous world. It is to exist forever under the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I'm going to read you several verses from one chapter of the Old Testament. And it's just one of many passages that nails both the problem and the solution. And I'm going to ask you to please just listen. Listen to God's own assessment of us and to the fix that he very clearly proclaims. Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. 
They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. They do not know the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on those paths does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street. Truth has stumbled in the street. And uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Beloved, that's God's assessment of the problem. Now here's his equally clear declaration of the solution. Forgive me. Here's his equally clear declaration of the solution. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, Now Yahweh saw excuse me, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, verse 15. Now Yahweh saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice, and he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself with zeal as with a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense, so they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. That's the judgment part. And here's the salvation part. Verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turned from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, 
nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says Yahweh, from now on and forever. How does that happen? How do men who do not know justice and cannot do justice come to have the words of God in their mouths and the justness of God in their hearts? There's only one way. God's own righteous right hand, Jesus, fiercely judges those who will not turn to him, and he brings his justice, his covenant-keeping love, to the hearts of those who do turn to him, replacing those hearts with his own heart. In fact, he's the one who has to do the turning. I'm getting close to done, but stick with me for a minute. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this, not the zeal of men, not the zeal of men, but the zeal of God. As long as man is at enmity with God, man will be at enmity with the other image bearers of God. The only one who can fix either of those conflicts is God and everything that was necessary to undo both of those conflicts was fully accomplished at the cross of Christ. He took the full weight of our eternal debt to God because of our unjust and unrighteous hearts, because of our violations of his character. And he put that debt on his own son, Jesus, the perfect man and perfect God in whom there was no sin, in whom there is perfect justness. And he bore our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. He was raised from the grave as the proof that his payment was entirely sufficient. That is the only solution. He has now clothed us with his righteousness. He has recreated us in his image. That's the only solution, beloved. If we as the redeemed of God are not proclaiming Christ as the only solution, we are failing our God-given assignment. So we who are the bearers of God in the world must seek justice. We must rebuke the ruthless. We must defend the orphan. We must plead for the widow. but we must be crystal clear about God's assessment of the problem and about God's declaration of the solution because God has been crystal clear about both.
The problem is that without Christ, we are all sinners and slaves to sin. We cannot fix what we have so grievously broken. Unjust men cannot make men just. Only the just and righteous King of glory, the Creator and Savior of mankind, can fix what we have broken. And he does so one soul at a time. And he does so overwhelmingly through those whom he has already redeemed. The answer that we must boldly and courageously proclaim to this world and that we must display by our lives, the answer is Jesus and him alone. Let us show the world how the souls of men act toward one another when our hearts have been made new and have been brought into everlasting union with Jesus. Let's be crystal clear about the fact that we are still waiting for the finishing out of that redemption, the redemption of these, of these dying and corrupt bodies. We still struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We still struggle against the habit of sin and injustice, and we, the redeemed of God, still need to be pointed continually back to Christ, just as surely as those whom we are pointing to Christ. And let us never stop telling the world that God's cure for injustice and for every sin that enslaves the souls of human beings is everlasting union with Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. Pray with me. Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.